morning we're going to take on the uh, subject of the marriage at Cana. Now the marriage at Cana um, was a very, turned out to be a very interesting marriage, didn't it? Now I have been to and I have officiated some very interesting marriages, marriage ceremonies. And uh, maybe you have attended some interesting ceremonies. I've seen a lot of sweet ones. I've been to a lot of uh, interesting ones, to say the least. Um, this was this turned out to be a very interesting, very interesting marriage. Now, <clears throat> I went. I officiated a wedding one time where uh, they played the, um, the the marriage song where she walks down the aisle. They they played that on a Hello Kitty cassette tape recorder. <laughs> you remember that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that was that was a good one. But you know, uh, they say marriage is bliss. Not a single amen on that one. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, there you go. Amen. There we go, brother. Uh, but in marriage, I think you would have to say there is bliss and there are blisters. Right? <laughs> Amen. There you go. I got an amen finally. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you have to get the blisters before you get to the bliss. So um, we're going to talk about the marriage of Canaan. This might be a, a more than a one part sermon. So pray for me that the Lord is in this. But as we read to you already this morning from the Word of God, we see that this was the very first miracle of Jesus Christ. This was the beginning of his public ministry. And as we're going to see, uh, this marriage was made up of his friends and family and neighbors and people his family had probably known for generations and he had known these people for at least 30 years. Because for 30 years, Jesus Christ lived a private life, did he not? But here, and why here, did he decide to start his public ministry? And he started off with a miracle. And I think it's really beautiful that he didn't start his, uh, his uh, public ministry over in Jerusalem. He didn't start it in Bethlehem. He didn't start it in some metropolis or some city known for its religiosity. He decided to start his public ministry with his close friends and family. I think that's beautiful. But this was his first miracle. Now as we go through the sermon, and maybe some more of these, um, you will see that Jesus Christ, his miracle was to turn water into wine. And a lot of us are wanting Jesus Christ, God, to intervene in our lives and maybe change some things. Or we want Jesus Christ to give us direction in our life. Sometimes we don't ask him for direction, we just do what we want to. But sometimes we are faced with some kind of monumental decision that's going to change things drastically. So we want to ask God or Jesus Christ to give us direction or tell us what we should do 
or you just need a bona fide miracle in your life. It's not. It's nothing's going to change your situation short of intervention from God. Now I have been in all those situations. How about you? Now, the thing is, we want Jesus Christ to do these things for us. See, we want a full-time Savior, but we want a full-time Savior on a part-time Christian's paycheck. Now, I am not putting forth to you some kind... You know, I don't like the TV preachers. (laughs) I talk about them all the time. I heard one the other day. He said that he was in his bathroom shaving and God came into the bathroom with him. Well, you know, I knew he wasn't telling the truth. You know how I knew? Because he kept on shaving. If, If God ever appeals to you, you see God's appearance in the Scriptures, you see people shouting, you see people falling down, you see people saying, he's got to say, fear not, because there's great fear there. That guy just kept on shaving. So I know God didn't walk into his bathroom. I mean, come on. But you know, the, the TV preachers, those are the, uh, that are very popular, tell us, well, you know, just name it and claim it. Or as I like to say, blab it and grab it. Or, you know, uh, Jesus or God is a, like a genie in the bottle. And if you rub the lamp just right, if you do, you know, steps one, two, and three, or do what you're supposed to, then the genie will come out and grant your wish. We see that's not the Jesus of the Bible either. We also see in the Bible, though, that we are to ask and seek and knock. Jesus gives us the example of the unjust judge. Somebody's not really friendly, bad. But if you keep pestering him, he'll even give somebody, the person that is the squeaky wheel, the oil, in other words. How much better will a God that loves you answer your prayers when you seek them? The prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So we know that God hears our prayers, even though we think they bounce off the ceiling like, you know, uh, rubber balls. Sometimes we feel that as we get down on our knees. We know that the God that loves us knows all about us and hears our prayers. There are some things that can hinder our prayers. But if we are approaching him with an unfeigned faith... He, he loves us and He hears us, but we know from the Scriptures He doesn't always answer our prayers like we want Him to because He is a sovereign God. You all know this. I've gone over ad nauseum. There's four answers to prayer. What are they? There's yes, we like that one. No, we don't like that one. Thirdly, wait, we don't like that one either. And number four, my grace is sufficient for thee. We don't like that one too much either. But we can love them if we love our Savior. Now we see Jesus Christ here was called to the marriage. There are people there that desired to have his presence, desired to have his company. It wasn't like, oh, we got to invite Jesus to the marriage. <laughs> you know, he's the a, he's a third cousin of, you know, Uncle So-and-so, and everybody would be mad if we don't invite him. No, it was clear that these people desired to have Jesus Christ and his disciples there at the marriage. The first thing we need to know 
If we want God to intervene in our lives, we got to know what God expects from us. Well, there's some things in the Bible tells us we have to do. And we hope that eventually that we view these things as not a have to, but I want to. But there's no negotiating the fact that there are things in the Bible God says you have to do. He commands you to do. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. A few verses earlier in that, it says, The husband and the wife are to submit unto one another. Guess what? I don't want to. Sometimes we don't want to do those things. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave you some, I don't want to. But the Bible says you have to. Well, if it says I have to, I guess I have to. But I don't want to. Sometimes I don't feel like I want to. Okay, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. See, that's non-negotiable. He says, children, you must obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Children, I, <laughs> I hear this more often than you believe. Uh, please do this. I don't want to. Well, see, we're hoping as parents that our, des our deep desire as parents is that our children finally gain the maturity to see it's not a thing I have to, it's I want to. I want to honor my parents. I want to help them out. I, I see that they love me and I want to return the love this way. The commandment is for parents to love their children. That's non-negotiable. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't do that. There are other things he tells us to do. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 he says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the matter some is. I could go on and on about that. But basically God says, go to church. You have to go to church. But I don't want to. <laughs> but as a Christian, we first get to the first step, which is... I'm a Christian, I read the Bible, I love Jesus Christ, even though I don't want to do these things, I need to, so I'm going to do them. Right. And face it, brothers and sisters, even the most pious among us, sometimes just ain't feeling it. Just ain't feeling it. But that's no excuse, correct? Right. So the question is, how do I change my have to to a want to? Yeah, you asked that question? I'm glad you asked intelligent questions this morning. Well, there's, I've told you this before, but I'll tell you again and emphasize this. Desire. There's four levels of desire. First of all, there's discipline. I do what I do because I have to. The next is duty. I do what I do because I ought to. The next one is delight. I do what I do because I want to. Well, that's the end of it, right, brother? No, there's one more level. There's devotion. I do what I do because I love Jesus Christ. And that's the level we're getting to. So the question is this morning, brother Chris, how do I get from... 
I do what I do because I have to. To I do what I do because I love Jesus Christ. I can't even get to step two, which is I do what I do because I ought to. The thing is, just do what God says. Be obedient to Him, and God will take care of the rest. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. That He will take you from the next step. He just says, obey me. Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. I ain't feeling it. No excuse. You made a vow. Right? So you made a vow to God. So therefore, your duty and your discipleship is to obey God. Have you ever done things that you just didn't want to do, but you did them anyway because you knew you should do them? I need. I know I need to go visit people in uh, nursing homes. To tell you the truth, I'll, I'll be confessing. Here's my. Y'all never confess to me. We should. We should be more like the Catholic Church. Y'all should be all confessing to me. I'm doing all the confessing all the time. Not fair. I don't want to visit. Sometimes it's depressing. I could go into other reasons why. See hurt people in the hospital. But you do it because you have to. And you do it and you do it. And suddenly, God changes that have to to a want to. Because you realize that when you do that, you benefit more seemingly than the person you visited you're blessed more than the blessing you're you're trying to bestow it's an amazing thing the husband love your wives i just ain't feeling it love your wife <laughs> i'm not saying uh you know act it out until it's real but <laughs> love your wife and if you continue to love your wife, even as Christ also loved the church, when you don't want to, as you obey God, He changes your want to. He changes it from I do what I do because I have to, to I, I do what I do because I ought to. And then it changes from I do what I do because I want to. And then suddenly you do what you do because you love Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is in everything. If you examine your life and you don't see Jesus Christ in it, write him in. When I and the boys were in Boy Scouts, I would go through the clothes, you know, folding clothes sometimes. Sometimes I'd help my wife fold clothes. Husbands love your wife. <clears throat> and so I'd be folding clothes and I'd find their names on their clothes. I'd even find their names on their underwear. And you say, oh, that's because we know we went camping such and such and they don't want their clothes getting mixed up or lost. Well, they wrote their name on it because it was theirs and they didn't want to lose it. If there's an area in your life that Jesus is not in, just write, write him in. And if it's an activity or someone or something that you cannot write your name in, then you need to get rid of that object that thing because you should be marking everything with the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ now I love your children <laughs> I don't want to 
Children, obey your parents. I don't want to. But do it anyway until God changes that level of desire in your life. The first step, my friends, in having Jesus Christ intervene in your life is to invite Jesus Christ to want Him, to desire Him, His presence, His person. I want Him here because I love Jesus Christ. I want Him here because I know I have to have Him here. I want Jesus Christ in my life. And I want to write Him in because I ought to. I have Jesus Christ because I want to. I just love Jesus Christ. Do you want your water turned to wine? Then love Jesus Christ. Love Him. Have that level of desire. Now... We're going to talk about the background of this a little bit. Where is this marriage at? It's Cana of Galilee. And where is Jesus from? Remember what the, uh, what the potential apostle said? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And I looked on the maps and it says that Nazareth and Cana are about three and a half miles apart. Also read that Nazareth was the bigger city, Cana was the smaller. A lot of times when you needed something, you traveled to the bigger city to get those things. There was lots of travel and there was closeness between those two cities. It's very possible that Jesus Christ's family, Mary and Joseph, and the family that was having the marriage was close. They probably had been close for generations. There's family and their friends and they've been bidden to the marriage. They wanted Jesus Christ at the wedding. The disciples are even um, invited. And what are they invited to? They're invited to the marriage feast. Now you have to know something about Jewish weddings before you can understand this fully. See, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he went to that woman's father and he says, I want to marry your daughter. And if the father approved of that marriage, then there was a something called a betrothal. What's a betrothal? Well, there was a covenant made. A covenant is a contract, is a formal agreement. And this covenant was, enter, was, was entered into for these two to be married. So that covenant was made a year before the actual marriage ceremony and the celebration of the marriage and the consummation of the marriage. So for this year, it's a covenant relationship, but they're not living together as husband and wife. So the question that you have is, what is he doing for that year? What's the bridegroom doing? Now they are considered husband and wife. At the time of that covenant is made, for that year they're considered husband and wife. That's the reason Joseph is talked about as the husband of Mary. Even though they had not consummated the marriage, they're in this betrothal one year period. They're considered husband and wife, even though they're not living together as husband and wife. They're considered under the eyes of God and under the covenant and contractually they are tied together. So what is he doing for this year? The husband, the, the future, the, the bridegroom at this point, he is getting ready for the marriage. What's he doing? First of all, he is preparing a place for the bride to be. 
And how does he get doing that? Well, he's got to get some money together. He's got to work real hard. He's got to save. And then he's got to build this house, a place to keep his bride. And sometimes it's a standalone structure. Sometimes he just added on to his father's house. You getting this already? Are you beginning to say, hmm, amen? I get what you're getting at. And so for this one-year betrothal, he is getting married. He's preparing a place for his bride. Now also, he is obligated, as the bridegroom, to pay for everything. He has to pay for the ceremony, he has to pay for the feast. As we see, the bridegroom is choosing his bride long before they're actually having the marriage ceremony and celebration. Isn't that interesting? And this covenant is an unbreakable promise, an agreement of his father and the father and the bride. And then he's preparing a place for his bride. Does that seem familiar to you? It should. Because in John chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus Christ says to his elect, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. See, the bridegroom is talking to his bride and he says, I'm going away. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you because I love you. I love you. You are my bride. And, and guess what he's going to do? He's going to build us a place. We are the bride. He's going to build us a place and he's going to connect it to his father's house. Isn't that great? In John chapter 14, verse 3, he says, And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Amen. In my Father's house there's many mansions, but I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to connect you right to my Father's house. And we're all going to live together in peace and harmony. And if I go... And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what? I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The great marriage of the Lamb. When's that going to happen, brothers and sisters? It's going to happen on the morning of the resurrection. When Jesus Christ comes back and says, if I go away, his disciples didn't want him to go away, right? Don't leave us. She says, if I go away, don't worry, I'll come again. Amen. And when I come again, we're going to be together forever. The great marriage of the Lamb. The morning of the resurrection. The Jewish tradition was that the bridegroom would work very hard. He worked very hard and saved his money because he had to pay for everything. Ephesians Peter chapter 1 verse 18 says, For as much as you know, you're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, see by tradition you're from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. What are we saying? Jesus paid it all. See, God didn't do anything by accident here. But He tells us and explains to us why the marriage is so sacred and what it represents. And why we are to look on marriage that way. We get to the feast. Here's the fun part. Here's the feast. And the feast, the wedding feast, would last for days. I mean, they would party. <laughs> they partied for days. 
And why are they partying so hard? Because the bridegroom has worked so hard. He had saved every sin he had. He had built something for his wife. He had been waiting for a whole year before he could have his wife. And he was, was doing all he could do in order to gain that woman. And so at the end of that year, they were going to celebrate. Here's the celebration. During that year, people have been looking at him and saying, is he working hard enough? Is he, does he deserve this girl? They're looking at him. Now Jesus Christ came on the scene and he showed us he was worthy, didn't he? Right. He was devoted. He worked so hard. He worked so hard. John in his gospel says, if all the miracles and all the great things that Jesus Christ did were written, the, the books of the world could not hold it. He was busy all the time showing us that worthy is the Lamb. That's the reason the seraphims and the angels and other angelic creatures in heaven were saying, holy, holy, holy. Because He is perfect. My friends, He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He did the ultimate thing by actually giving His life for the bride. He didn't just say the words. He didn't just preach it. He gave the word and then He did the work. Amen? That's the pattern here of John. He's trying to show us that Jesus Christ not only gives us the Word, He also backs it up with the work. Husband, love your wife, even as Christ also loved His wife. Gave Himself for it. He, actually, he did sacrifice Himself. He was tortured and He suffered and He died upon the cross. He was buried for three days because of His love. Not because He had to. Not because He ought to. But because He loved us. In return, He says, I want that level of desire from you. He says, I know you don't want to sometimes. You're made of flesh. You're sinful. He says, but transform. Go to the next level. Just keep doing what you're doing. Do what you know you're supposed to do. And God will take care of the rest. A lot of times that's my counseling. When people come to me, um, husband and wife, families, everybody else, they, they want advice about what to do. And it's just like a parent with a child. child already knows what to do. They know right and wrong. We don't have to explain it to them over and over again. They know. And my advice in all these counseling sessions is just do the right thing. You know the right thing to do. Do the right thing and God will take care of the rest. He just wants us to be obedient. And He'll take care of the want to as well. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, we love our Lord so much. Because He's taking care of everything in our lives. Alright, let's look at the Scripture finally, okay? Let's look at this. John chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, And the third day there was a marriage in, the, in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, verse 2, And both Jesus was called and His disciples to the marriage. Notice in verse 1 it says, The third day. Now, John is not going to waste words. No word in the Bible is wasted. 
We just have to figure out why it's there. And why did he say the third day? Well, that's the reason I read to you, sort of backwards fashion, John chapter 1, verses 45 through 51. We started with Nathaniel there, right? Then went to Philip. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Then he brings him to Jesus because he says, come and see. What does Jesus say? He says, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. <laughs> That's all it took for him. See, he was, he was under the fig tree. And this had to happen. He must have known no one was watching him under the fig tree. He was alone. I don't know what he's doing under the fig tree, praying or something. I don't know. But he knew that there was nobody around. So he knew that Jesus saw him when nobody saw him. He knew that was a fact. And he was pretty easy to convince, wasn't he? He is, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Right. Now all this is happening three days before the marriage. See, Jesus always gives the word, and then he does the work. He's going to give this disciple the word here. I'm about to give it to you. And then, in John chapter 2, turning water into wine, that's the work. Right. And there's a purpose that Jesus Christ does this. This is the theme of John. If you read through John, if you ever see a miracle done in the, in the Gospel of John, you know it's the work. Therefore, it's reinforcing a word that Jesus Christ has already preached and has already given. He's always going to back up his word with the work. Okay, so he says to him, he says, look at John chapter 1 verse 51. And Nathanael says, and he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see... Oh, well, let's go to verse 50. Let's go to verse 50 first. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Verse 51. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So, you tell me, in the rest of John or anywhere else in the Gospels or wherever, that Nathaniel saw the heavens open and a ladder come down and angels ascending and descending upon. There's no record of that. Ever. But Jesus said, you're going to see it. You're going to see it. So what was Jesus Christ making reference? That third day, he wasn't given like a timeline <laughs> so you could trace Jesus Christ's movements. He's saying, listen, this is connected. Here's the connective tissue here that you need to understand. He gives a word, then he backs it up with the works. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, of course, he's talking about Jacob, right? We, that immediately, us Bible readers think of angels on the ladder ascending and descending, and Father, God the Father standing at the top of the ladder. Oh yeah, Genesis chapter 28. Jacob is on his way to Haran. And he gets and gathers some stones for a pillow. <laughs> and uh, we could, don't, don't have time this morning, 
But we can prove that those stones are Jesus Christ as well. And he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees heaven open. And he sees a ladder descending from heaven down to earth. And then he sees the Father standing at the top of the ladder. And what's going on on the ladder? There's angels ascending and descending. Why did they descend? Because angels come from heaven. Angel is a Greek word that means messenger. God used angels as messengers to communicate from God to man. Knowledge of God and given down to man. So this Jacob's ladder is a picture of God's revelation to man. Okay, that's the picture. God's revelation to man. Now in Genesis chapter 18, we see that God sends three men, angels, to Abraham to give him and tell him what he should do, right? Over in uh, Judges chapter 6, we see an angel is sent to Gideon and tells him, we preached about this before, he says, the Lord is with thee and thou mighty man of valor. He's there to give a discouraged Gideon some motivation along the way. Over in Luke chapter 1, what happens over there? He, the angel Gabriel, his name. And he comes to tell Mary that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. See, God is sending these angels down from heaven to give revelation and information to man. And of course, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, there's an angel sent to Joseph. Because Joseph, in that betrothal period, has heard that Mary is with child. He knows that the marriage has not been consummated. The marriage ceremony hasn't taken place. And so he's making plans to put her away privately. When the angel comes to him, fear not, Joseph... <laughs> He says, and he explains that she is going to have Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. That happened, right? He was named Jesus. First of all, his wife Mary shall bring forth a son. Well, that happened, right? Number two, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Well, that happened, right? Right. And the last part of that verse says, and he shall save his people from their sins. That happened, right? Yes. I mean, we accept all that. The world doesn't accept the third part of that verse as happening. But I do. Because we serve a sovereign God. Right. And these messages were brought by angels. Now, what is it? John chapter 1, verse 51. Jesus is making himself the ladder. So the angels that are ascending and descending upon him means that every word that God gives, God is standing, according to Genesis chapter 28, at the top of the ladder. Every word that God gives is coming from the Savior, who is the ladder, the bridge. There's one man between God and man. The mediator. There's one mediator. And his name is Jesus Christ the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 1 says, God who sundry times and diverse manners spake in times back to the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken to us by his dear son. Amen. In the last days, he's got a ladder, brothers. He's got a ladder. John chapter 1, very beginning, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the revelation of God to man. And the messages that are going to man are via Jesus Christ Himself. No one has seen God at any time. But the begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Jesus Christ came to the earth to declare God. My words and my works declare who I am. Give us the word, Jesus Christ. There's the word. I am the latter. God's revelation to man. I am he. I am the word. If you're not Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than these. What's the greater thing? What's the best thing? The best thing is Jesus Christ Himself. His very presence is the very miracle. And it's the words, the precious words that He speaks. What did Jesus say? An adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. How do you believe Jesus Christ? Based on His Word. Based on the Word He put in your heart so that you can believe the Word. And love the Word. He is the ladder. He's the ladder. In John chapter 1, verse 51. And he turns the water into wine, my friends. I'm going to have to end here. The first thing you need to do, my friends, is love Jesus Christ. Invite him and desire him into your life. And if you love him and desire him, you're taking a great step in wanting Jesus to be there for your decisions and for your miracles.